0: Welcome to Trinity Church. Uh, this is our first week of Advent, so very exciting uh, time for us. Uh, thank you for everyone who uh, joined us at the Walmart outreach uh, yesterday, everyone who uh, prayed for it. Uh, it was a good time. Uh, had a lot of people passing through. Uh, had a, a couple other uh, nonprofits uh, there, and um, I-, I remember... <laughs> When I saw the uh, Salvation Army uh, pulling up and getting out like, oh boy, how are we, you know, they're never going to hear me over uh, a big loud bell that uh, keeps constantly uh, ringing. Uh, but, but God was working. And at least on my side of the uh, entrance, uh, the lady there was uh, Mary. She was a uh, very festive And uh, celebrating Christmas and uh, ringing that bell. And uh, it just shocked her that we were giving something away. Like, she thought the poll was in some way our, like, offering box at first. And she, she just couldn't understand it. And, you know, so then she started announcing to people that, you know, we were given free donuts and coffee. And eventually, she had some coffee and a donut, and realized that it was pretty good. And she just started going off the walls and like telling people, "Remember that name, Trinity Church." And she thought, like, when you hear it on radio or TV, I'm like, well, all right, internet. But it was. A good uh, connection that God brought that we obviously had uh, no, um, no plans for, and uh, God was, was working. And um, today, as, as we start Advent, and you, you think about uh, this Christmas season, uh, think about how much time we spend of our lives in the Christmas season. It goes on for a whole month. Retailers think it goes on for a month and a half or more. And uh, that's one twelfth of your life. If you live a good long life, what, you'll you'll celebrate Christmas 60, 70, 80, maybe even 90 uh, times in your life. And and it's easy to uh, fall a prey to the trap to think that well, everyone kind of has this Christmas thing figured out. I mean, if if you celebrate it for a month every year, you know, by the time you're 30 or 40, or, you know, you should probably have a good idea what you're celebrating. And people have figured out some songs, figured out the right words to say, some Christianese terms. Like one we'll talk about today is Emmanuel, and they they know some of the stuff, but for a lot of people, if you ask them, they'd be almost clueless as to how Christmas could mean light in the darkness, a hope for the hopeless, the answer to our deepest longing. And that's what in this, uh, this Sunday and the next uh, three Sundays, uh, twice on Christmas Eve, morning and evening, uh, that's what we hope to uh, explain uh, through our Advent series how Christmas could radically change everything. Today we're going to be looking at the Old Testament, the same with the, the next two weeks as the Old Testament uh, prepares the way for the coming of Jesus. And today we have Isaiah 7. So without further ado, we've got the whole chapter today. So let's, let's dig in. if you didn't get a listening guide, you, you can lift your, lift your hand or go grab one from the back. It will guide our study of this passage today. Let's read the whole chapter together. Isaiah chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Bramalia, the king of Israel, came to Jerusalem to wage war against it. But could not yet mount an attack against it, when the house of David was told Syria is in a league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, And let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Romalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol and, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of Israel, is it too little that you for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign: behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the end Of the streams of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines, and in the clefts of the rocks, and on all the thorn bushes, and on all the pastures. In that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will be swept away the beard also. In that day, a man shall keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Pray with me. God, I pray you would uh, quiet our hearts, that we would uh, set aside the busyness, uh, tune out the noise of all the things in our minds, that we have to get done to do later today, that that we would study this passage well and would see Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. I pray that your Spirit would reveal him to us, that we would be attentive to the Spirit as he teaches us, and that we would Uh, Go from this uh, place changed, uh, because of your word, in Christ's name, Amen. All right, so so we've got the whole chapter today. Uh, Our focus is primarily going to be on verse fourteen. You might have it on a coffee mug, on a Christmas decoration, Uh, but before you get the tattoo um, for for your Christmas present to yourself. it's good to understand this uh, verse in uh, context and what it uh, actually means. Now, this is a prophetic narrative. So what we're going to follow the flow of the passage. And, and in the process, what we'll see uh, three truths uh, from this uh, prophetic narrative uh, as we go. So starting off, the, the first nine verses here uh, give us... The difficult situation uh, going on for uh, Judah and Judah's king, uh, Ahaz. Uh, you have in, in verse one, Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, king of Israel, are, are trying to force Ahaz and Judah to join them in, in alliance against Assyria. Ahaz is young, he, he took the throne when he was about 20 years old. Uh, as we see in verse 1, uh, he, he's pretty well worn out from his first war with uh, Israel, Syria. And um, they, they didn't take Jerusalem, but it, it's only a matter of time. And now, now they're back again, ready to attack. It is a rough condition for Judah. They are far outnumbered. Uh, I like the description. Look at verse 2. It says, um, And the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The general feeling in Judah of Ahaz 2 is fear, panic. They, they feel like they're doomed, that they have no chance, and they know that if they, they don't win this war, if Syria and Israel defeat them, uh, their power is gone, and very possibly their lives, too. Look at verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Joshua, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So uh, Ahaz is fearful and Isaiah comes to him. Uh, that location, it may just seem like, okay, that's where he was. Uh, but it actually reveals what uh, Ahaz is doing. He's uh, looking to, to secure his water supply for this war that about ready to start. He knows the siege of Jerusalem is coming. Got us to secure his water supply. He's concerned, worried, fear. And that's where Isaiah finds him. And what does Isaiah tell him? Verse 4. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. It's the four imperatives, repetition of words of assurance to Ahaz. Now, it is natural to fear in this situation. It didn't look too good for Judah. It didn't look too good for Ahaz. But the call here is to overcome that fear. More details to come in the following verses. I like how Calvin Uh, describes uh, this uh, fear. He says, It is impossible, I acknowledge, not to fear when dangers threaten, for faith does not deprive us of all feeling. On the contrary, the children of God are undoubtedly moved by two kinds of fear, one of which arises from the feeling of human nature, even though they be endued with perfect faith. The other arises from the weakness of faith. For no man has made such proficiency as to have any remains of that distrust against which we ought continually to strive. We must not, therefore, understand the exhortation of the prophet, meaning Isaiah, to mean that the Lord forbids every kind of fear, but he enjoins believers to be armed with such firmness as to overcome fear. And if he had said, as if he had said, do not suffer yourselves to be discouraged. And if you are assailed by fierce and severe attacks, maintain unshaken resolution that you may not be overpowered by dangers, but on the contrary, live to God and overcome all your distresses. Isaiah's calling the king to reconsider his fear, to think carefully about his response, to exercise courage and leadership, not just to go along with how everyone else, seemingly, in Judah, what was feeling at the time about this uh, attack that, that was about ready to start. And uh, to ease Ahaz's fears... Uh, Look how Isaiah presents the fierce anger uh, of these kings. And and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. That these are just smoldering stumps of firebrands. They look dangerous, quite visible, a lot of smoke, but that's all they are. There's no danger. They are harmless. They, they will go out in just a matter of time. And, and that's God's view of these two kings. And then down in verses five and six, you see that these kings have plans. They want to terrify Judah with a plan to set up the, their own king in Judah after they defeat it. And then verse 7, thus says the Lord God. Their, their plans will not work. God speaks that it's just not going down that way. And then he lists off the leaders and you might wonder, well, why does he do that? it seems to indicate that he's listing off them to say that they're mere mortals. Rezin, not too big in God's eyes, son of Vermalia. God isn't shaking in fear. If God were the head of either of these nations, it would be different. But if God is the head of Judah and you just have these mere mortals leading Israel, leading Syria. The battle isn't fair. And then look in verse 9, second part of the verse. I love this. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Isaiah challenges Ahaz and the nation to trust God. This is a second person plural. It's not just to Ahaz. It's also to the rest of the nation. It's to all of Judah. And I love the play on words here. In the Hebrew, it's the same word. If you're not firm, you will not be firm at all. It's the same word that the first time first occurrence of this verb it's in the hyphial refers to making oneself firm believing standing firm firm in faith and then the second occurrence slightly different same word uh, playing on it here in the nifal uh, pointed as a passive in the Masoretic text it refers to remaining firm secure and it, it brings this beautiful connection between s- f- spiritual well-being, firmness in faith, and physical well-being. That those two are connected. That if they are not firm in faith, they will not be firm at all. Their physical well-being is connected to their spiritual state and their spiritual well-being. For Ahaz, he already has his mind made up what he's going to do. He's going to make a treaty with Assyria. He's going to have to pay huge tributes to Assyria for that protection. And he's going to take some of the items from the temple uh, to pay off the king of Assyria. Making uh, Judah, a, a vassal of Assyria. And, and this is not good news for him, that faith and belief determine physical security. That's not, not good news uh, for Ahaz. So coming into verse 10, the basic issue here is, who should Ahaz trust in the face of the threat of Syria and Israel? Is he going to trust the Lord God or is he going to trust in Assyria? So then in verse verse 10, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol. That's pretty deep. Or high as heaven. Very high. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord To the test. So God offers him a sign. Just a little tip. If God offers you a sign and tells you to ask for a sign, not the time to refuse and to play, hey, look, I'm more spiritual than God. (laughs) Doesn't work out too well. God uh, calls his bluff, points out his hypocrisy, and reveals his heart as a wasteland void of faith. Ahaz has his own plan for how he's going to deal with his terror, this terror going on. And it doesn't involve trusting God. He doesn't want a sign. He doesn't want to, in any way, shape, or form, be tempted to believe God. He wants to do what he has already devised in his mind to do, and trust in Assyria. Then verse 13. And he and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So God accuses the royal house of David of wearying him. Ahaz certainly is angering God, and he isn't alone. The rest of the house. Uh, has done the same, is wearying God. And, and at this point, but before we go any farther, I just wanted to make a brief application. This is a prophetic passage, this is a prophetic narrative. And part of how narrative works is it presents characters. Sometimes characters to emulate, sometimes characters not to emulate. Ahaz certainly is in the latter category. His unbelief is obvious in this passage. It is glaring. He has no desire to believe God. He doesn't want a sign. He isn't changing his mind. He is without faith. And that leads us to the first truth, that you cannot please God without faith. We hear this in the New Testament in Hebrews, in a didactic section, that you cannot please God without faith. You must come to God in faith. Anselm's famous principle is, I do not seek to understand so that I may believe, but rather I believe so that I may understand. Augustine argued in the same vein that you must first believe to have understanding. And that belief, that faith, is ultimately a gift from God. Ahaz did not come in faith to believe God. He came with his mind made up. He's making a treaty with Assyria. He is going to trust in that alliance, not in God. And he has no desire for a sign. Because of that, if you are not a Christian here today, I would call you to cry out to God for faith that you would believe Him. Don't close yourself off to what God has said in His Word. Doubt your doubts. Come to any of us here at Trinity. Let's talk, let's dialogue during this Christmas season about your objections to the faith. Let's walk through and we want to show you Jesus. And for Isaiah, faith is not an abstract concept. It works itself out in answering the question, who or what are you trusting in? Faithless Ahaz was trusting in Assyria, trusting in his own wisdom dominated by his own fears, not dominated by faith. And his story reveals a deep reality that actions reveal heart, that words may have mixed reliability. Here he's uh, putting on a show, saying some nice sounding words, like, I don't need a sign, No, his actions reveal where his heart truly is. And I bet a lot of us in this room would confess to be trusting in our triune God and him alone. But do your actions support that claim? Or am I hedging my bets with God? Where this worked its way out in my life earlier in the year when DJ had first uh, run by the idea of the church plant, of Trinity, is my first reaction was, ooh, that, that, that sounds, sounds awesome. How can I be involved but with little commitment? And maybe some of you guys had the same thought of Man, my life is busy, you know, work, family. You know, we found out uh, Sayla was on the way, just had all kinds of other things going on. And my, my first reaction was trusting in my own wisdom, my own strength, what I could do on my own, what I could uh, figure out, and not trusting in God and God's wisdom, God's strength. And ultimately, God uh, changed me. And uh, drew me in faith to believe Him, to trust in Him, and not in my own wisdom. H- how I thought, man, we could we could make this happen. That that wasn't wasn't what I needed. I needed faith to trust in Him. And verse fourteen. Keep rolling here. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So God is going to give the house of David, second person, a plural again, a sign, even though Ahaz isn't interested. And you see here, God's exasperated. This sign really isn't grace at all to Ahaz. And it says that, behold, a virgin shall conceive. So uh, in the Hebrew here, this is a the word for virgin, translated here, is a young woman after puberty who is unmarried. Now in that culture, honor-shame uh, culture with, with their um, morality and stuff, it, it didn't necessarily indicate virgin, but that was certainly Implied that she was faithful, pure uh, before marriage. And the uh, Septuagint translators uh, translated it as a virgin, likewise. The focus of this uh, prophecy is on uh, the last word in this verse and shall call his name Emmanuel. That it's kind of a generic description that this young woman, virgin, shall conceive and bear a son. Very generic, not, no names, no, no substantial details. Other than you come to and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's not making an assertion here concerning God's omnipresence. God is present everywhere. He sees everything. Surely God was present in Judah, just like he was, in that sense, present in in all the world, in all the nations. But they, they don't just want God's presence. They know what God's presence for judgment means for them, has meant for them, and has meant for the nations. They want God with us God's presence for blessing. What does Emmanuel mean for Judah and also for us? God with us means he is in close relationship with us. He is not merely physically near. He is spiritually and emotionally near. God with us means God is for us. He is fighting our battles for us. And if God is for his people... Who is stopping God? God with us means that all his promises are alive and active. And Judah had many great promises of God to to cling to, but they were only active if God was for his people, on their side, in close relationship with them. God with us means the people of God matter. It said God with us, not Not God with you, God with me, it's God with us as a people, the people of God enjoying this close relationship of fellowship with God. I hope I've made my point clear that Emmanuel is a very good thing, something Isaiah, Israel, Judah, that they ultimately longed for. And for Judah, this, A sign is hope that this future son will will be a ruler sometime after Ahaz. He will renew God's favor with God's people, with Judah. A a sign of hope to the faithful minority in Judah at the time. Uh, They they were certainly the faithful few and they had, had a hard time finding a reason for encouragement as they looked at the leadership of the nation at the time, as they looked at Ahaz. And this was hope to keep pressing on that this Emmanuel would come. And then in, in verses 15 through 17, it, it, Isaiah unpacks how this sign is judgment mixed with hope. Verse fifteen. He shall eat curds and honey, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So he eats curds and honey, curds, and sorry, not cheese curds. Although I like those, uh, think sour milk cream. Uh, this is term is sometimes used to describe uh, God's blessing, but in light of this context, in the light of verse uh, twenty one and twenty two. Uh, this this is definitely negative in this situation. It refers to a return to a nomadic lifestyle from the a farming uh, context of Judah. Judah depended on strong agriculture and to return to uh, curds and honey is not a good thing. And the, this judgment... God's saying that it's not going to take long, that by the time the boy can refuse evil and choose good, which, by the way, Ahaz wasn't too good at that. Refusing evil, choosing good, not his specialty. Hadn't done too well at that. Uh, the, this part is hope that uh, for the Davidic dynasty, it's not hope for Ahaz, but it's hope that this future a ruler would come and would choose good Refuse evil. But by the time he can refuse evil, choose good, Syria and Israel are deserted. They're defeated, desolate. This happened in uh, 732 and 722, uh, respectively. But Assyria, the agent who Judah was trusting in to protect them from the threat of Syria, and Israel will be an even greater disaster for Judah. That Ahaz had foolishly hired them. He had placed his faith in them, blinded by his unbelief. He treats God as his enemy and Assyria as his protector, as his ally, when actually Assyria is his enemy and God is the one who loves saving his people. And certainly is more than able. And then look at verses 18 through 25. We see the national consequences of that. In ver- verse 17, have the word as such days, and then marks out uh, fourfold national consequences, repeating that in this day uh, for each of them, and first off, in verses 18-19, through 19, we have that the, the land is infested with swarms of enemy troops. Swarms of flies and bees. This is not a good thing. They're not getting away. You can't just swat them down. Then in verse 20, we have the, the shame of their heads shaved by the very razor that they hired by Assyria. They are down to the bare essentials. Their heads shaved. It says their beards are shaved. Even the hair of their feet was shaved. Which most of us don't have too much hair on their feet. It's it's a euphemism. Um, Their dignity is gone. uh, Which is especially true in this honor-shame culture. Then verse 21 and 22. In that day a man shall keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. Now this might sound a little bit good, you know, abundance of milk. This is not good. I consulted theologians. Sometimes commentaries aren't enough. So I asked uh, Hosanna and Lindy for a lunch yesterday, uh, how many people, can live off of one cow and two sheep, which is, is, he's saying that one cow, two sheep, that's plenty to provide plenty of food for the, the remnant left. And uh, their answer was uh, 16 noses, <laughs> which, you know, they, they, they kind of got it. They, not too many people uh, can live off of one cow, two sheep. And look at verses 23 through 25 that the vines for supplying abundance of food, abundance of wine, will become briars and thorns. This is not a good thing. The national consequences are devastating of this national unbelief highlighted by Ahaz's failure to trust God. And at this time, well, let's just take an application um, brief moment here that the judgment of God is nothing to be toyed around with. Truth number two, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what Hebrews 10.31 says in the context of judgment. Judgment earlier in Isaiah uh, later in Isaiah Isaiah 33 it says the sinners in Zion are afraid trembling has seized the godless who among us can dwell with the consuming fire who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings L- Luke 12:5 Jesus says but i will warn you whom to fear fear him who after he He has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. God is not like a lot of parents making empty threats. Parents making threats of, I'm going to eat all your candy, or I'm going to throw away all your toys, or or my favorite, uh, the parental threat of, I'm going to leave you at the store or something like that, really. You're not going to, like, the, that's called child abuse. The authorities will be after you. You can't actually leave them. God isn't into making empty threats. He's shown that he'll wipe out the nations. He's shortly you're going to wipe out Israel, Syria. It, God does not take disobedience, unbelief, lightly. And this is a reminder to us to not take our sin, our disobedience, our failure to believe God lightly. God doesn't take it lightly. Today, if you're living in sin, you should fear. You should fear this God who brings judgment. His judgment is nothing to dismiss, to set to the side, to ignore. So, who fulfills this prophecy? First of all, uh, it is partially fulfilled in a, a boy. Well, we don't know who. The, the passage doesn't spell it out. It might be in uh, chapter 8. Isaiah talks about uh, this guy. Long name. Miroshel That That's a long one there. Or... or a leader like Hezekiah, passage it doesn't tell us, but verse 14 doesn't come to us in a vacuum. You know, look at the rest of this, this passage by the time the boy knows how to choose good, refuse evil. That this is definitely pointing to a boy in the royal family in Ahaz's lifetime born of a pure young woman. She, she gets married, uh, has sex, has this baby boy. That's how contemporary Jews would have interpreted uh, that word uh, translated as a virgin here. But, but you might be objecting, I thought this was Advent. So why haven't we talked about Jesus yet? And we're talking about Mayor Hella, you know, whatever his name is, and maybe Hezekiah. But actually, this adds to the depth of our understanding of who Jesus is and what He came to do. Because does this boy, whether it's Mayor Hella, Hashbaz, Hezekiah, or a boy like one of those two? Does this boy ever emerge as a powerful leader, bringing the nation back to close fellowship with God? Ultimately, no. The people, unfortunately, have little appetite for that type of a leader and for that close communion with God. And therefore, this prophecy needs an ultimate fulfillment. And that's where Jesus comes in. So truth number three, the coming of Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of Emmanuel. Look in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, how Matthew describes the birth of Jesus. and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That Jesus was born of a sexually pure young woman. And get this, they don't really have a category for this. She's still a virgin. There's, there's not really, when you, you come in for a pregnancy um, test and you're, you're having a baby, there's not really a category for pregnant virgins And that Jesus lives up to his name as Emmanuel, God with us. He brings the gracious presence of God to his people. This forever, never leaving, because he has secured atonement through his own blood on the cross. He not only brings us near to God, but he is God. And when he ascends to heaven, he sends his Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to live in and empower the followers of Jesus. And He promises to never leave or forsake them. And His people are not just ethnic Israel. There, it is the church. It is every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Again and again, Always, Jesus chooses right, refuses evil, even under the toughest of circumstances and greatest of temptations. Uh, Origin proclaims Jesus' uniqueness in that he rejected evil and accepted good from the beginning of his life to the end. That wasn't done by anyone in the Old Testament. So so how does this truth impact us this Christmas season? If you are not a Christian here today, this is the Jesus we have to hold up to you. You've heard the songs, you've sung about Emmanuel, but do you have a desire to be near to God? To be near to this Jesus, to have him bring you in close Fellowship with God. And if you are a Christian, this truth should reinvigorate our joy this season as we celebrate Jesus' birth. This is a birth worth celebrating. This is a king worth bowing down to. This is good news and great joy to all people who trust in Jesus as king born of a virgin in the humblest of settings. This is Emmanuel, God come to dwell with his people, God with us. This is Christmas. This is our Christmas message. And at this time, we have the privilege of celebrating communion as it reminds us that Our Emmanuel, God with us, has come. If you are a Christian, Jesus has brought you near to God through pouring out his own blood, through sacrificing his body on the cross. It was nothing we did, it wasn't us trusting in our strength, our wisdom. It was the wisdom of God at work in the death of Jesus on our behalf. We, we partake the Lord's Supper together as a church to make much of Him, not to make much of ourselves, not to make much of Trinity Church. We're about the name of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, bringing us into close communion with Him. So if you would, join me. Stand. We're going to read this passage um, from 1 Corinthians from the Apostle Paul. Read the underlined uh, portion with me. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You can take a seat. Let's take a time of meditation here as we prepare for communion. Communion is for those of us who have trusted in this Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. God come to dwell with us. God come to bring us into close communion with us. God who is for us, fighting our battles for us, for those of us who've trusted in that Jesus and been baptized to proclaim to the church and to the watching world that we identify with Jesus. We're we're not a a closet Christian, but we proclaim that loudly that we identify with Christ. We also give during this time a basket in the back, also online giving, and uh, then we celebrate this Jesus. It is not meant to just leave us in reflection concerning our sin, but is meant to give us joy. and we should sing and worship this Jesus during this season, that people are going to be excited all. Around us, but many excited for wrong reasons, reasons that don't ultimately satisfy, that don't bring joy, that goes beyond this season, goes through the rest of the year, that goes to to end of life, that goes forever. We have this joy as found in our Emmanuel, a God with us. So let's pray. And then celebrate the body of Christ broken, given for us. The blood of Christ poured out on our behalf. Father God, thank you for sending us Jesus. Thank you that this prophecy out of the mouth of Isaiah, hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus, thank you that No boy born in Judah could ultimately fulfill this prophecy that no leader rising up during Ahaz's life ultimately brought God with us, God's people into close communion with you. We thank you that it foreshadows and points to the coming of Jesus, that we get to celebrate him born of a virgin called Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you that we get to live in light of the coming of Jesus, that we get to celebrate who He is and what He's done for us and that our lives are changed because of that. We have true hope. We have a lasting joy because of the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. And we pray this in His name because of what He has accomplished on our behalf.